This is the McKinsey Podcast, where we help you make sense out of our world's toughest business challenges. Welcome to the show. I'm Lucia Rahili. And I'm Roberta Fasaro. I do think we need to rethink some quite significant aspects of how corporations will operate in the same way that we rethought multinationals in a very meaningful and fundamental way after the fall of the Berlin Wall. That's McKinsey senior partner Andrew Grant. He joins me and McKinsey partner Ziad Haider to talk about how to conduct business in a rapidly changing geopolitical climate. After, McKinsey partner Jennifer Stanley shares an early career lesson on how to move through any self-doubt and trust your experience from our Rookie Moment series. Ziad, Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's an absolute privilege to be with you today. Thanks, Lucia. Great to be here with you and Andrew. Let's start with some context. So the war in Ukraine has put a pretty bright spotlight on geopolitical risk and on the very tangible disruptions it has caused in the wide range of areas, energy, food, supply chain, and so forth. Related, the war has also put globalization under renewed scrutiny as those same ties that tether us together now also present us with these interdependency risks. Help us make sense of these changing dynamics in the geopolitical landscape. Ziad, let's start with you. We're in a transition period from what used to be a more or less a unipolar world to a much more multipolar world. From a military point of view, there is still the U.S.'s global preeminence in the military domain. From an economic point of view, there's, of course, still the U.S. in pole position, but there's the EU and China, so it's much more of a tripolar world. But when we come to sort of the political dimension, it is much more diffuse at a time when global governance that was put in place after World War II is just not working. And I think where that's playing out most dramatically uh, right now is two different theaters in Europe and in the Indo-Pacific. If we look at Europe and Russia's invasion of Ukraine, disruption doesn't do it justice when we think of 8 million people who have been driven out of their homes and millions more that will be without heat or electricity you know, this winter period. So companies are having to live with that shock, but at a human level, it's deeply tragic. And at the same time, we have what's happening in the Indo-Pacific, which is the escalating U.S.-China strategic competition. There are these structural forces of competition at work, which is leading to a question that actually the Japanese prime minister posed very eloquently here in Singapore at the Shangri-La Dialogue. And that is today Ukraine, tomorrow East Asia, with a bit of a question mark. And by that, what we're getting to is the fact that the instability that we see in Europe, are we going to see similar conflagrations here in Asia, which is the engine of global growth. I have to say, I'm quite struck in the last couple of months, the number of corporate leaders, the number of global leaders of our most impressive corporates have made statements to the effect, we live in a world now where geopolitics trumps capital markets. Now, that's a very, very big call. When you think of the life of a corporate leader, you know, optimizing around the capital markets, making sure that you are stewarding the value of your your enterprise. Much of the discussion of geopolitical risk has focused on supply chain resilience for the obvious reasons. Say a few words about some of the other risks that are on the rise or that are becoming more acute and what leaders should do to prepare for them. 
two domains that we would put up, capital and people. When you think about the assumptions for a very global organization, you've always thought very globally around the idea that you would actually deploy capital very differentially based on country risk or different geopolitical risks. The reality of those risks require you to think quite differentially about capital. Do you actually deploy the amount of capital? Do you have different expectations around timeframes? Do you think more about partnering and using other people's capital? So we're actually seeing, call it risks, but it's not just risks, it's more just a more fundamental approach to the way you think about allocating capital. Likewise with people, we have expectations that the talent working for our organizations is very global. They want to be part of a connected global organization. We're seeing that nationality is starting to matter a whole lot more, that actually holding an organization together when many of your employees are subject to much more nationalistic forces than they used to be. Uh, Certainly the leaders that we speak with, engage with, I think most people are really quite concerned about how do they nurture a global culture that in a world that is nowhere near as sympathetic to that as it used to be. And maybe just to add on the supply chain point and then another dimension of risk, I think on supply chains, it's also worth disaggregating the risks of maintaining a supply chain in a geopolitically challenging market, which many companies are doing, but need to do with a lot more care and diligence to make sure that there isn't, for example, forced labor involved in that supply chain. There's a dimension of supply chain, which is moving to other less geopolitically challenging countries or what some would call friendshoring, be it your India's or Indonesia's or Vietnam's. Uh, and of course, there are regulatory and other challenges and opportunities there as well. And then there's a the phenomenon of moving supply chains back home. So, you know, basically you know, onshoring, bringing it back, which links into the themes of industrial policy we're seeing. So these three dynamics or facets of supply chains are all interacting at the same time. I think the other risk uh, to add, in addition to people and supply chains, um, is also just the reputational risks. So how do you actually maintain a global footprint, but be ready to answer the question of why are you in that problematic market where there are human rights issues? The, the bar for explaining where you are and why you're there has gone up, both from external stakeholders, be it the media or parliament, but also internally uh, with colleagues. And that's something that companies are having to balance. And what you say in one market very quickly shows up in the other market. So you cannot get away with shading your messaging too much either. We see in our McKinsey research that geopolitical risk is at the top now of the CEO agenda. Business leaders know that they need to take action, but historically, at least in Western countries, leaders seemed more able to address geopolitical risk in kind of an ad hoc way in the past as specific crises or specific risks emerged. What's different now? How do these changes add up to a change in approach that's necessary for leaders to take? For me, first base is absolutely building the level of awareness and understanding in the organization that there really is an awareness and an understanding and a literacy about what the issues at play are and the implications for your organization. Secondly, I think there's a level of professionalism and some critical new capabilities that organizations need to build in in response to that. Many countries have extraterritorial reach as well around some of that law, some of those powers. And we would say the, the professionalism required around really understanding the legal and regulatory implications of those laws is very high. 
I also think there's a real need for a common language around geopolitics is not born equal. It affects different countries differently. How do I think about that? How do I categorize? How do I have a, again, almost a common language within the organization to understand and make decisions and coordinate and bring along a global enterprise? And just to add to that, the world has changed and it's forced companies to have to be more granular. I mean, if we look at the 90s, we were talking about an era of US-led hyper-globalization. We were talking about the US facilitating China's entry into the WTO. We even had discussions at the Russia-NATO level. It's hard to imagine at this point. But we've seen that the arc has changed and we have now a revival of you know almost old-fashioned major power competition between the theater in Europe and in the Indo-Pacific. Right. And at the same time, I think what has also come under strain is within the U.S. itself, these questions about its global role and the value proposition of unconstrained globalization. And some of those are actually quite important and healthy questions in the words of the U.S. National Intelligence Council, much more contested. And the other thing that I think is embedded in there is there was an idea in the 90s that by MNC multinationals going out to global markets, there could be this phenomenon of change through trade. You could transform markets, make them more open, more democratic. Um, There was that perception. Now, I think for many people coming off the Russia invasion of Ukraine, there's a question, does that hold? Can you really be in some of these difficult markets and expect to actually significantly change them? Or do you actually need to be quite careful and clear out and not be in some of these places? And if you are, explain why. So that unconstrained idea of being a global MNC, I think, has fundamentally been tested. And so now the question is, how do you be global and what's the right way to do it in this geopolitical environment? Give us the high level on what leaders should be doing differently to plan for geopolitical risk and to become more geopolitically resilient. What are the broad categories they should consider? And do they have to reckon with all those categories together? Are some more important than others? Give us just that high-level framework that you recommend. There are one category of country that I would describe as having very localized geopolitical risks. Uh, Those are risks that are material for operations in that discrete geography. However, one thing that we are finding for many global companies is they might have 35 countries, 40 countries that have these local geopolitical risks. When you add them up, that's actually quite a significant portfolio of risk in those. At the other end of the spectrum, obviously, arguably for the first time in recent history, we have two genuine geopolitical superpowers in the US and China. And for corporates operating you know, meaningfully in those two places, there are very real geopolitical considerations that come as a result of great power competition. Then in between, I think there are countries that have genuine and global military risks, defense and security risks, and those that have what I'd describe as human rights reputational risks that are quite global in their nature. And those countries in the middle typically are nations of genuine significance that really figure very materially in the global operations of a a global company. Again, there are others, but for truly global companies, we find that that's quite helpful. We would also argue for US-China that the world has never seen two powers of this magnitude that are also so incredibly intertwined and interconnected with each other. I mean, clearly there are dimensions like human rights that are very challenging and very problematic. But at the other end of the spectrum, the collaboration that has gone on between the US and China on climate is remarkable. 
but it's a much more nuanced and considered framework that you need to have around, you know, what more accurately describes an incredibly complicated, interconnected, dynamic relationship that needs also to be monitored and managed in a very active way. And just adding a couple of thoughts there, I mean, I think Andrew hit on it, which is the board, right? And the leadership just being much more granular. This is, I would argue, every month is the board spending real time looking at the top five markets of geopolitical concern and has a clear game plan about what is being done to manage those risks. And incidentally, that starts with having a common set of facts, because in this global world, even within an organization, there are different points of view. So how is the board being educated around these topics? Is there a common fact pattern? And then how are we actually monitoring the risks in an operational way, not just in a kind of academic way? We're seeing a lot of our clients invest in you know, their classic corporate affairs capabilities, their legal teams, given the uptake and regulatory changes, their government affairs teams. Who are you talking to on the ground? What's your air cover? How are you developing that? We already touched on narrative uh, in terms of how you explain your point of view. I think another topic that's quite important to clients is, you know, how do you think of your structural presence, be that your tech stack or your corporate structure in a market? Are there degrees of freedom to be created or risks to be managed if you have a separate tech stack in a country or if you have a separate corporate entity? On the other hand, at some point, all accountability goes to the headquarters. So companies are grappling with what's the right footprint to have. And then I think lastly, it's quite critical is the people side of managing geopolitical risk. Because people have their own geopolitics. Um, it's not so much their interest. It's just a point of view where they grow up. And so negotiating those different points of view in an organization to keep it strong, unified, and acting in one way is quite important. How do you kind of have a common worldview? And if there are differences, how do you reconcile them to have a clear, firm position on a topic? One other point I might add is mindset and the mindset that the board and the top team take to this. And the mindset I would emphasize is humility. Ziad and I had the privilege of meeting with the head of government relations for arguably one of the world's largest and most sophisticated companies in dealing with this. And he made the statement that they have thrown more resource at the geopolitical challenge over the last year than they could ever have imagined. They now understand the problems with incredible fidelity, with no great answers. I think it's really important for global companies that These are very three-dimensional problems and making sure that we are viewing them from not just our own national lens, but making sure that there is truly that global view. There's not always a black and a white around the right stance. And even if there's a black and a white today, there may not be a black and a white tomorrow. Are most clients or most companies moving in this direction already? Or is it only the biggest ones, as you just described? I think there are elements of this that are definitely happening. Geopolitical risk is not new, and companies in certain sectors like oil and gas have been dealing with these issues for for many, many decades, and not centuries in some cases. But I think there are others, for example, the whole technology domain and thinking of your tech stack in a splintering world where there are different regulations in different jurisdictions. These are novel issues in many ways. And so I think a lot of companies are having to grapple with those new facets. One comment that I do have And again, this is at the more global and the larger companies. Many of them feel that they've actually invested a lot in this. They do feel it's been a not piecemeal, but it's been almost a bit reactionary. We've got a problem here. We need to backfill and address it. The one challenge that I received from a chief executive a couple of weeks ago that I thought was actually 
quite an intriguing thought, uh, was this idea that for many years, we've always understood what it takes to really earn a growth premium for a company. The question they asked is, is there any way I could make all of these new things that I'm doing about geopolitical risk? Could they add, add up to the point that I make my organization sufficiently better that I could actually earn a resilience premium? That people really look at me and say, I'm really fit for purpose around navigating and thriving in a world that is actually going to be more dangerous around geopolitical risk. And I think that's a really interesting thought. By the way, I don't think many, if any, organizations are there yet. Leaders have to focus on building resilience across their organization. But what role are they expected to play now in more public discussion of geopolitical issues? I think in some ways it's, it's again, worth disaggregating on social issues, very much so. On political and geopolitical issues, I do think this has been a seismic year. When we look at about a thousand plus companies that have exited Russia, according to this tracker that is being maintained by Yale University, a big part of those exits was also an expectation for the CEO and the company to take a position. And Edelman uh, puts out this trust barometer about the expectations of CEOs on different topics. And this was a topic that at the beginning of this year, in the report, they called out that the expectation for CEOs in the wake of Russia, Ukraine, to be taking a clear position on these geopolitical stances. And I think collectively, that means moving from a world where it's not just about sort of corporate social responsibility, but, you know, as one of our board members talks about it, it's sort of talking about corporate political responsibility and taking a stance more clearly. Now, that isn't cost free. Right. And so that's why I think it's worth thinking of a position which one has to sometimes take, which is a position of courage. You're just going to go out there. There is a cost. You're going to do it. And then we also have to see these positions of humility where companies make mistakes and they will and they are or they don't have the right processes or protocols and they are held to account internally, externally. And so there are these positions of humility as well that have to be articulated and say, look, we got it wrong and here's how we're going to fix it. So I think the expectation writ large of CEOs to speak on these topics of social and political in the social media environment has gone up. But I'd also differentiate a bit about the different types of positions that they may or may not need to take along the way. To Ziad's point, in my view, the most important audience is actually your own people and really making sure that it's authentic, real and lived and that your people believe it and that your people really feel that it's an accurate representation of who you are and what you actually do. And maybe linking this dimension of sort of, you know, thinking of managing or building resilience, which is your narrative and how you manage reputational risk. If one does take that position, you know, of publicly saying, listen, we are exiting this market or we're taking a principled view, thinking really critically about what that means for your people in another part of the world is quite central. And that's an important piece because oftentimes these discussions go to headquarters and a decision is made speaking to a Western audience or a certain set of audiences. But the security and physical implications for colleagues in that market can be quite severe. And so when the next crisis comes, I do think that's going to be one where lots of companies are going to have to think about how do we, when and how loudly do we articulate a position when we absolutely need to, or or think we should. Diverging interests are inevitable within these global companies. How do you think leaders should prepare to navigate those conflicting geopolitical interests among their employee base before a crisis happens? Companies do need to be prepared and be thoughtful in advance of time that we will require some courageous and some brave and, quite frankly, quite costly 
decisions that will need to be made. And I also think there's really this point about what does the global corporation look like in a world that is a very different world? And I I do think we need to rethink what does the global corporation, what does the global multinational look like uh, in this changing world? And I do think we need to rethink um, some quite significant aspects of how corporations will operate in the same way that we rethought multinationals in a very meaningful and fundamental way after the fall of the Berlin Wall. We tend to talk a lot about the things that an organization should be doing to manage the external environment. But I think three things that come to my mind is first and foremost, what's the mindset that one is bringing to these conversations, right? If the mindset is one where I actually want to really try to walk in my colleagues' shoes and understand where they're coming from and not come at it from sort of, I have a monopoly on the truth, um, that goes a long way of humanizing these discussions. I think there's also something about how leadership signals, right? We see right now in some of these trickier markets, CEOs are saying, okay, for example, with China opening up, Many CEOs are going to go with it. That's important signaling. Is the leadership showing up? You could substitute China for any number of other complicated markets out there. So there is something about how you signal. And then I would say a third thing is the forums that you're creating in your own organization, the risk committees, the town halls. Are those actually aptly reflective of the global nature of your organization? Do people feel like their voices are being heard? I mean, it's almost a basic point, but it's so important because very often some of these conversation organizations very quickly move towards a few people in headquarters. The flip side of that is they cannot be full transparency. Some of these topics are sensitive. So again, to Andrew's point, one has to be humble about this. We've spoken a couple of times about responses to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. That was a cut and dried issue for various reasons for many leaders, but most geopolitical issues tend to be much harder to parse, more complex. Any recommendations for how to proceed in those instances? My own view is resilience is a bit like a muscle. Yes, there is good and bad that's quite clear at some level. There's not good and bad at some other levels in actually navigating this through. And I think, therefore, really making sure that you are bringing the right approach and the right tool to the right problem and having the right amount of moral courage, values, and calling things that genuinely are human rights issues, human rights issues. If they are, quite frankly, great power competition issues or straight out commercial competition and national interest and national industrial policy issues, let's call them as that and not mix everything into we're the good guys, they're the bad guys, step across the line and we'll shoot you. I do think there needs to be a level of sophistication and bravery, but also fidelity that needs to be appropriately tailored to the issues at hand. Part of being able to deal with those gray situations is to actually have, to some extent, thought about them in advance. So what many companies are doing is the exercise of classic scenario planning, where they look at a range of scenarios They look at the watch points to give them a sense of which way it's going. And they think about what positions they would take. And that's exactly the kind of muscle that we're talking about needing to build when we do have these sort of events and geopolitical spikes that happen. It can take you all the way there because you cannot anticipate every scenario or the speed. Russia-Ukraine is quite interesting because on one hand, there was an extended Russian military buildup. 
So we all saw something coming, but we also probably did not, many of us expect there to be a full-fledged invasion trying to go all the way to Kiev. So there are these questions of preparedness that many companies are taking from the experience of Russia-Ukraine and already trying to apply to the Asia context. But also looking around the corner, it need not be the Taiwan Straits. It could be the South China Sea. It could be around the Pacific Islands. And so I think part of the answer is is essentially to be thinking about those range of scenarios and not just the protocols, but how would you respond? Would you put out a statement? Would you take a stance? That's part of it in developing a, a posture. Leaders are navigating what has to be one of the most challenging operating environments in recent memory. And setting up an enterprise-wide approach to building this geopolitical muscle, as you described, Andrew, can be a big investment at a busy time. If you're talking to leaders who might be laboring under short-term pressures, what do you tell them is the number one issue that's at stake for them? If you really believe in a world where geopolitics trumps capital markets, then clearly it is your number one priority. And we see that from leaders, they recognize that. So I think if you do recognize that it is your number one issue and the importance, there has to be truth in advertising in terms of share of mind and where leaders really put their effort and their time and their perspective. I also genuinely believe that there is an opportunity to create a more modern enterprise, an enterprise that is better evolved to the new geopolitical context. I think there's a very significant prize potentially around a resilience premium. I think if you just hope that 2019 is going to come around the corner again, uh, you're going to be sorely disappointed. It is a new world and these are new muscles and they require real leadership attention and nurturing and resource allocation decisions that are often quite brave. And I think there's a very significant competitive prize for those that do this most purposefully, most bravely in an accelerated way will be those that thrive in the next era. If you don't focus on this issue, number one, you potentially put your people at risk, depending on the markets we're talking about. Number two, you do put your growth at risk, your presence in that market. And number three is you put yourself at legal risk if you're not across the different uh, regulatory expert control sanctions regimes. So there are real consequences. And I take your point that you know there's a poly crisis to be managed here. The one thing that I feel that every board should be doing in 2023 is actually having that conversation where they put on a piece of paper the top five markets where they have the most geopolitical exposure and look at them side by side and think about what do we need to do to manage our position in these markets better. But many of them, from what Andrew and I are seeing, are gravitating towards the big questions around China, uh, as they should, but not maybe necessarily with the right level of detail. And over here, coming out of Russia, Ukraine, we are seeing certain you know opportunities in, t- in terms of an accelerated energy transition. That's an opportunity to be a part of. Um, we are seeing something coming out of the tension in the Indo-Pacific about friendshoring, which makes certain other geographies and countries more pivotal. So how do you position yourself? So I think the other point is to say that fuse the idea of seeking opportunities in this fragmenting landscape with a clear focus at the board level of what are the markets where you have real heat and what are you going to do about them uh, versus just having the kind of more classic conversation about geopolitical risk that, that many of us are engaging in as well. Andrew and Ziad, great discussion. Thanks so much for joining us. 
Thank you so much for facilitating such a fantastic conversation. Thank you. Thanks very much, Lucia. Real pleasure to be here with you. McKinsey partner Jennifer Stanley was convinced her lack of business experience would prevent her from doing a good job on an M&A project. But as her manager pointed out, she actually had the skills, just not the confidence. Hear more in an excerpt from our Rookie Moment series. The first time I was working on a project that involved a merger and an acquisition was frankly terrifying for me. I I didn't go to business school. I had no clue what the term due diligence meant in the merger and acquisition world. And here I found myself on a project asked to do some modeling about a potential joint venture partner for the client that we were serving. And I, I truly had no idea how to start building the model. I frankly was panicking a little bit because I knew that for something like this, the expectations were quite high. So what I did first to just calm myself down was I found a mentor who I'd actually met while I was being recruited for my job here at McKinsey. And I just fessed up and said, I'm really nervous. I'm I'm actually not quite sure what I'm doing. And he asked me to describe what it looked like when I was at my best in graduate school. And I started to describe these statistical models, but in the social science context. And he said, perfect, you know how to build a model. You're just using different kinds of data. And so my mentor then suggested to me to go in and speak with my manager and write down a list of the things I thought I could bring to the study that were strengths that would help out in the investigation that we were getting ready to go do and to be bold and asking him to align me to work streams that in some way, shape or form match things I was good at so that I could get some momentum. And to my delight, what I thought was going to be you know, a really difficult conversation, having to say, I've never done this kind of a project before. My manager said, thank goodness, you know, you know something about something and we can actually put that to good use on this project. And the thing that I learned is that every time I'm confronted with a new problem or opportunity, and if I ask for some help from someone and they talk me through it and we reframe the nature of the contribution I can make, I probably know more than I think that I do. And there's probably probably a way to build momentum and build my confidence and make a great contribution to the team and to the client. Thanks so much for listening to the McKinsey Podcast. I'm Lucia Rahili. And I'm Roberta Fasaro. Find us on McKinsey.com. We'll have a transcript of this episode up shortly. And check out the McKinsey Insights app where you can find this podcast and other helpful content updated daily. And if you would, we'd love for you to leave a rating and a review. We'll see you in two weeks.